Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 through 28. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We now come to the end of our series on 1 Thessalonians. A lot is going on in our church family. And I am aware that some of you, some families are under sorrow and grief at the loss of loved ones. And I think also of those in Hawaii who have lost so much. I'm also aware that uh, all the kids and our families are getting ready to go back to school. Now for me, that's not a big deal, but I do know that, and I remember when you had kids, what a change of lifestyle that is, <laughs> to go back to school. And so in the midst of all of these things that are happening, the block party next week and all of these things, we come to the end of this series on First Thessalonians. And the theme of this book has been how to live with hope and holiness in the midst of hostility and suffering and difficulty. We know this difficulty, we know the suffering, we know the oppression and sometimes the hostility. And we desperately need to learn to live with hope. And our hope is to live with God in his holiness. The last two chapters of this book, chapters four and five especially, Paul is calling us to a serious commitment to deep and devout walk with God. These two chapters are a serious call to a holy, devout life that pleases God. So I hope that you will decide right now not to turn off this message but that you will decide to give your full attention to something that is very 
serious. Paul explains in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the beginning of this section, this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness. His plan and will for you is to make you blameless and holy before him. And when Paul says that God's will for us is our holiness, we must understand that our holiness and sanctification are not optional. They are a necessary part of God's plan of salvation for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 puts it this way, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is writ written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This means that I cannot please God and not pursue holiness. I cannot be a follower of Christ and not experience his work of sanctification in my life. Hebrews chapter 3 emphasizes that this is not just a theme from the book of 1 Thessalonians, but for all of the New Testament. First Hebrews chapter 13 verse 20, May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of his eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So when Paul mentions several things in this last section, in these last two chapters, that we ought to do, commands to us for our Christian life, he's talking about behavior that will make us more holy in line with his plan for our lives. We need to see that context as we look at some of these commands. So now let's review a little bit some of the commands that he has given in these two chapters of how we ought to walk in a way that pleases him so that we become blameless and holy. First, abstain from all sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. Next, we learned that we need to love our brothers by quietly taking care of our own business in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. Then we found that we need to live with hope and do not despair over those who have died in the Lord, but live with hope of being reunited with them when the Lord returns. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18. 
And last week we learned that we need to be vigilant in our walk with God so that we are ready at any moment for his return. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. And so now today, in the section that Bethany wrote, read, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, we have some more commands about how to live a holy and devout life that pleases God. And we'll look at these commands, and then we will let Paul close out this whole book with a prayer and a promise. So Paul continues his list of instructions on how to live a holy and devout life. Verses 12 and 13. So this would be number five on the whole list that Paul sends to the Thessalonian church. And his, this command is honor and respect the spiritual leaders in the church. Verses 12 and 13. And we are to respect them for three reasons. First, they work hard on our behalf. We're talking about the elders and the pastors and the teachers and life group leaders and Bible teachers and ministry leaders who work hard and study to prepare sermons and lessons. They work hard to instruct people for baptism and church membership and marriage. They're visiting the sick and the hurting and praying for them. They're counseling the disturbed and the troubled. They're praying and interceding for all. And so much of this work is unseen, but believe me, it is hard work. Secondly, we are to respect our leaders for their steady hand to care for us. The Greek word here means those who care for you in the Lord. They are to lead with gentleness and humility. As servant leaders, they have authority to guide and to manage and shape the church with wisdom and compassion. Third, we, these spiritual leaders are the ones who admonish us as members of the family. This means that they warn against bad behavior, but they also reprove and discipline us at times, but also they teach us and train us and admonish us in the way to go. And so because of their work, not because of their title, not because of their role, but because of their work, we should respect and love them. This is a way of living a holy life. We should show appreciation and affection to those who are over us. The translation of the message puts it this way. And now, friends, we ask you to honor those leaders who work so hard for you, who have been given the responsibility of urging and guiding you along in your obedience. Overwhelm them with appreciation and love. The next command is found in verses 14 and 15. And it's this, we should care for the weak and the hurting in our congregation. We do this 
especially with three kinds of people. The idlers. Warn the idlers, Paul says. The word is literally the disorderly. In Thessalonica, it, was, it meant those people who he had referred to earlier, who had just quit working because they expected the Lord to come back at any time, and they didn't see why they need to keep working when he was going to come back so soon. But these were living off the gifts and off of the of, and generosity of others, and they were not willing to work and to support themselves. Paul says, admonish them. Tell them to mend their ways. Do let them, don't let them get away with this. The second group is to encourage the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted is those who are struggling emotionally with feelings of inadequacy and meaninglessness. Help them to find their place, says the apostle. People who feel out of it, who think that they do not belong, who cannot contribute anything. They must be helped to find their place because they do have a place in the body of Christ. God has equipped all of his people with gifts, and we are to help each one find their gift and to find their place with something to do and to encourage them in their work as they are getting along. And then finally, he says, help the weak ones. This means, I think, especially those who are weak in the faith. Romans, chap Romans chapter 14, those who do not know very much about the doctrine of the Christian life, who have not learned the truth that sets them free, and they need extra help. They're just struggling in their faith. Perhaps they're not even sure of their salvation, or they feel guilty about the past, or they do not sense that they have really been forgiven yet by God. Whatever it may be, the word is to help them, to hold them fast, to hug them. It demands a little extra effort, a phone call perhaps, an invitation to lunch, or a quiet talk about their needs. And Paul says, you need to help these who are needy with a spirit of patience. <laughs> we can often become very impatient with those who are struggling, who are having a difficult time. <laughs> they, they're high maintenance. <laughs> and sometimes we can feel, can't you get it? Why do I have to spend some more time explaining this to you? I've done this before. And we get so impatient with them and look down on them. But Paul says we are to follow even the example of God himself in being long-suffering with those who are in need. Now, so far in this last part of chapter 5, Paul has talked about how we ought to relate to spiritual leaders in the local church and how we ought to relate to others who are in need in the church. Now, he gives some brief bullet points on how we ought to relate to God himself. This is verses 16 through 18. And he uses three verbs here. Rejoice, pray, 
give thanks. And with these quick commands, Paul is telling the believer how they should relate to God. First, they are to rejoice always. Paul is not saying that we should be happy all the time, no matter what is happening around us. Joy and happiness are not at our command and cannot be turned on or off like a tap. But Paul is saying that in all circumstances, we should be able to see God at work and we should rejoice in his good providence on our behalf in all circumstances. I think Romans chapter 8 is the key passage that helps us to trust God in all circumstances. Romans 8 talks about suffering with Christ. We live in a world that is full of hurt and injustice and violence and all kinds of suffering. And we remember, must remember that the Thessalonian church also were struggling and suffering persecution. In fact, they, it, Paul says, you accepted the Lord under persecution and in spite of persecution. But Romans 8 teaches us the suffering and persecution are all temporary. And that through all these difficult situations, God is working it all together for our spiritual benefit. This is what it says. And we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give graciously all things for us? God is for us. And he's working for us. And it is guaranteed that no matter what the circumstances, it's going to be okay. In his providence and control over all things, he will work all things together in order to accomplish his goal for us and bring us to glory in his sinless presence. Therefore, trust is not about everything turning out okay. Trust is about being okay no matter how things turn out. We need to understand and really trust this providence of God. And when we do, our hearts leap for joy. 
We need to turn our eyes off of the world that is falling apart around us and turn our eyes upon Jesus and his providence working for us in the midst of all of these circumstances. Because when we look at the circumstances and suffering and hurt, we despair. But when we look at Christ, who is working with power on our behalf in all circumstances, we rejoice. So I repeat, trust is not about everything turning out okay. Trust is about being okay, no matter how things turn out. That's based on a quote from Billy Humphrey, by the way. Second bullet point, pray without ceasing. This is very similar to Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Tell God your needs, and don't forget to thank him for his answers. And if you do that, you'll experience the peace of God, which guards your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ. So don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Without ceasing does not mean that we stop before anything we do and kneel down and pray. But it does mean that we live in constant conversation with God. We should live always in an attitude and an atmosphere of worship and prayer. All day, every day, throughout the day, in the middle of the night when you wake up, pray, 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 talk to God. Personally, I found a practice that is helping me a great deal, to pause at least once every 30 minutes throughout the day and turn my thoughts toward God and ask Him to be with me in whatever I am doing at that moment. It changes the way I live through each day. By the way, I can do that right now in the middle of this sermon. And it changes the way I preach. That is the point of Paul's instruction. Live in constant conversation and communion with God. Don't let the noise of this world dominate your thoughts. Focus instead on fellowship with God your Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Finally, he says, in all circumstances, in all circumstances, give thanks. It doesn't say in, for all circumstances, but in all circumstances. In the midst of any circumstance, we can thank God that, that we are not alone and that he is working in his good providence on our behalf. Notice how the apostle underlines this. He said, this is the will of God for you. 
This is the only second time in this letter that we have this phrase, this is the will of God. We had it first of all in chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul says, this is the will of God for you, that you know how to preserve your own body in moral purity. This is the will of God for your body. But here is the will of God for your spirit, your inner life, that you give thanks in all circumstances. And if you want to do the will of God, there are the two areas in which you need to do it clearly set out for you. Moral purity for your body and continual thanksgiving in your spirit. The final instruction that Paul gives for the Thessalonian church is how to receive the word of God. This is number eight. And those words are not found in the text in verses 19 and 20, but they're strongly implied. And let me mention these in reverse order. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies. Let me talk first about do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. We learn from 1 Corinthians and also this letter that in the early church, in that first century, they did not have the New Testament. <laughs> it was just in the process of being written. Paul was just writing this letter, by the way. And he does say later that they need to have this read to all the brothers. But it wasn't yet the New Testament. So when they got together, what did they do? They didn't have, maybe they had scripture reading, but it would be from the Torah and the Old Testament. And so their practice was to receive from the Spirit some insider instruction which one individual, man or woman, had received, and then they shared it with the whole assembly. I remember one time in West Africa, I attended a Mennonite church. They had uh, missions to help with humanitarian needs throughout the region. They didn't have a pastor or a preacher. Everyone sat in quiet meditation in a circle around the room. And we sat and reflected on a scripture that had just been read. And the time passed, and it seemed very awkward to me. But they seemed very comfortable waiting on the Lord to speak. And then as the Spirit led, one and another would speak up and share a thought or an insight that they had received from the Word. And something similar, I think, is taking place here in these first churches as they formed under the ministry of Paul. Remember again, they did not have the New Testament scriptures to read. And so Paul says, receive and do not despise the prophecies. That's the sharing of the insights which the Lord had given to one and another. And Paul is careful to add, however, but these prophecies or words from the Lord need to be tested. We are to sift them, to weigh them carefully, to see if what they say is true. And how are we to evaluate it? 
Well, he doesn't say in this, but it's probably something like the inhabitants of Berea. They were to examine the scriptures to see if what any Christian teacher said was really true. Does it conform to the rest of the teaching of the New Testament and of the Bible? And Paul says we are not to despise these teachings, but to evaluate them. Now, it seems to me that these insights from the Word of God and being able to evaluate them is receiving the Word with our mind. We're to think about it. We're to grasp it. We're to understand it. It's similar to what we did in the DTM as we asked the questions about the text. What was the context? To whom was it written? Why was it written? What words were used? And we examine it. We understand it. We evaluate it to correctly interpret the meaning of the word that is preached. And so I hope you have taken advantage of this booklet that we have shared with you so that you can understand with your mind what the Word is saying. He's, it seems to me that he is saying that God speaks to us not only through the written Word, but all through the inner voice of the Spirit, because he says, do not quench the Spirit. Now, the Spirit is the one who speaks to us in our inner being, in our heart. And this is like receiving the word, not with our mind, but with our heart. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16, it says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe. Paul is saying, let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart through his word so that you know his voice. Don't quench him. Don't put the fire out. There's much I could share about that. When I'm preaching, I read the word and I get all wrapped up in what does it say? And I exegete all the words and the phrases and everything. But there needs to come a time when I stop and say, Lord, Spirit, what are you saying to me? And if I haven't heard God's Spirit speaking to me, how dare I declare to you the Word of God? Now, there are two verses that close out this whole section and the whole book. First Thessalonians, verse 23 and verse 24. And I need a whole nother sermon to talk about them, but I won't. Verse 23 is prayer. Prayer for our sanctification. Paul says, now 
May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at his coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God's goal and plan for those who is called and redeemed and justified is to sanctify them and make them holy as he is holy. We started with that, didn't we? Paul clearly stated this in chapter 4, verse 3. And that is why Paul now is giving us all of this list of commands and how to live a holy life that pleases him. But as you've listened to all of these over the last few weeks, you're probably like me and just a little bit overwhelmed because I know that there's no way on my own that I can live a life that is holy like that. There's no one in this room that lives a holy life as he is outlined here. No one can be justified and redeemed except by grace alone. And no one can become holy without his work in us. If we are going to be holy, we need God's help. And that is why Paul prays to the God of peace and reconciliation, asking him to sanctify us completely. Because God alone can transform us from being alienated sinners into accepted and loved saints. He prays that the sanctification will be complete in a way that transforms our body and our soul and our spirit. And we don't have time to go into that, unpack all of what that means about our person. But it at least means this, that when I am transformed, my whole personality is changed. Everything becomes new. The old is completely done away with. Sanctification is a process that completely changes me, but it is a process. It is, takes time to change us from being sinful to being holy and blameless. And it is God's will and his desire for our lives, each one of his children, to become blameless and holy. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, his good pleasure. We work out our salvation, but God works into us his power and his love. He does not make us obey him, but we, because we're not robots, but he works in us to make us into people who do obey him 
and who can obey him. Finally, Paul gives the promise. God who has called you is faithful and he will do it. He will do what? He will make you holy. This is God's promise to us this morning. This is God's call to us to be holy. Recently, I had a medical wellness checkup. I'm feeling fine. I'm in pretty good condition for my age, but I have diabetes. And I've been able to manage it with some medication. However, the results of the test at this checkup revealed that my blood sugar was not under control. When the doctor saw the test results and gave them to me, he was quiet for a little while, and so was I. And then he said, I think it's time to get serious about your diabetes. You see, so far I've been able to get along pretty well in keeping my blood sugar levels down to acceptable levels without changing my eating and exercise habits too much. <laughs> I could pretty much go to the French restaurant and eat a delicious croissant anytime I wanted. I could take my wife for, out for an ice cream once in a while. I didn't have to monitor my blood sugar every day. I managed my illness with just superficial treatments. I was diabetic but I didn't let it change the way I live. Unfortunately, I think there are many Christians who live their li Christian lives like I treated my diabetes. They're able to manage their sins without changing their lifestyle very much. They indulge in their cherished sinful habits without thinking too deeply about how this affects our relationship with God. The problem is superficial Christianity. Richard Foster is the author of a classic celebration of discipline. And he states, superficiality is the curse of this age. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. Superficial Christians often fill our churches and Foster goes on and observes, many people come to worship services, but they are never really present. They are never really there. Many people come to church fully expecting to be bored for an hour or an hour and a half. We do not fully intend to think deeply about the Word of God, 
and how to seriously pursue a life that is pleasing to him. We hope that with a, just a little small injection of corporate worship and sermonizing that we can somehow get by with one more week of superficial, shallow kind of life that doesn't change us too much. And we miss the point of this book and especially these last two chapters. If you see these last two chapters just as a list of other things that we need to do in order to be a better Christian, then you've missed the whole point. These are not just prescriptions in how to manage your sins. They are not just a way to manage your diabetes. Paul is talking about changing your whole life. These are ex exhortations, serious commands on how to live a devout life of holiness that brings you into a deep, close communion with God. I think it's time that we got serious. Will you pray with me? Father, we confess that for too long and too often, we've just managed to drift by without changing our life too much. But you have called us to be holy, to, to be devout in our pursuit of you. Oh God, I pray, when we live in this world where the noise of sin grows louder and louder, that we would grow closer and closer to you. I pray, Lord, that right now, as we sing, you would help us to get serious in pursuing a devout and holy life with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.